Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to episode six of our monthly Connecting with Classics series, where I, Aaron, and my co-host, Don Shanahan of Every Movie Has a Lesson, have a conversation about a widely regarded great film from the past. For this month's pick, we took the opportunity to discuss a film about a paleontologist during the same week that another dinosaur-centric series is getting its newest entry in Jurassic World 2. Now, I know what you're all thinking. This is connecting with classics, and Aaron just said paleontologist. That can only mean one thing, right? Your mind goes straight to a certain Steven Spielberg blockbuster celebrating its 25th anniversary this month. Well, we're going to go back a little further and a little sillier with the loosest movie interpretation of a paleontologist possible. In my best John Hammond voice, welcome to Screwball Comedy. We step back 80 years into a black and white past for 1938's Bringing Up Baby, directed by Howard Hawks and starring Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. So if you were hoping for true dinosaurs, sorry, all we have are Hollywood dinosaurs, but we promise there's plenty to enjoy from bringing a baby. Come and discover some old bones with us here. As usual, spoiler warning, we are a podcast that is best listened to after seeing the film, so turn us off now and come back later. Absolutely, Don. Well, we like to start with some history, and you are much more the history buff than I am, so I know that you scoured the old Jurassic era for some information about this Very film. So. What uh, what are some of the highlights that you came up with regarding Bringing Up Baby? It's kind of funny. Uh, normally, we get to this history section, and we talk about, we go straight to awards. This movie was nominated for zero Oscars or major awards. It was actually kind of um, a box office flop when it debuted in 1938. Um, it only turned a profit when it was re-released some years later after the huge success of uh, the next Cary Grant and uh, Catherine Hepburn film, The Philadelphia Story from 1940. Uh, this is the second of four uh, Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn films um, after Sylvia Scarlet and Holiday and a little bit before Holiday and the Philadelphia Story. The Philadelphia Story for me is an all-time top 10 favorite that you'll hear me talk about a ton, probably too much on this podcast, but that's all right. Uh, I'll keep it to bring it, baby, but even still. So even before this film, uh, Catherine Hepburn was kind of seen as a bit of a box office poison because... I don't think Hollywood was ready for her kind of progressive thing. She wasn't in a lot of big hits. And even the low performance of this film got her and director Howard Hawks's RKO contracts bought out early, which means they're like, you know, you guys, here's some money, walk away. Um, even though many praised her performance in the film and most people see it as Hawks's um, best film to date. So it's kind of interesting that it kind of had those kind of screw ups and angles there a little bit. Television in time was really what brought back this film to acclaim and kind of its brand of comedy. Uh, again, it was nominated for zero awards, but it did make the original AFI top 100 list at number 97 as one of the greatest films of uh, greatest American films of all time. It climbed up to number 88 on the 10th anniversary list 10 years later in 2007. It also has a couple of other AFI distinctions, and that would be it's the number 14 um, film on the 100 Years 100 Last comedy list that puts it behind Young Frankenstein and just ahead of uh, the Philadelphia story, Singing in the Rain and the Odd Couple. So that kind of gives you an idea of the, the level of which people praise this film. It's also number 51 on the 100 Years 100 Passions list for romance. Uh, the top of that list, as we all love, is Casablanca. But down there at number 51, this is right after Shakespeare in Love and right in front of The Graduate. 
if you're looking for where this is going. More than anything, uh, people go back to come back to, I should say, to bringing up baby because it's kind of the definitive example of screwball comedy. The way they kind of describe this film on the Wikipedia page as as a bit of a as a bit of a citation to what is kind of screwball comedy. They say, "quote zany antics and pratfalls, absur- absurd situations and misunderstandings." a perfect sense of comic timing, the screwball cast members, and a series of lunatic and harebrained misadventures, disasters, lighthearted surprises, and romantic comedy. The last little notes for history is um, this film has gotten the regard enough since then to be a little bit more loosely remade or remade or cited as an homage where uh, Peter Bogdanovich's 1972 film, What's Up Doc with Barbara Streisand, is meant to be kind of an homage to this. And uh, more of a straight-up remake would be the 1987 Madonna film, Who's That Girl? I've never seen actually either one of those films. Have you, Aaron? No, I have not. And... I really enjoyed hearing about the history. A lot of things stuck out to me there. The fact that there were really no awards received for this film, and yet it's here in the AFI Top 100. It's placement above movies considered great comedies like Singing in the Rain or The Odd Couple. It's existence on the Top 100 Passions list. I I might have some questions about that as well. I I agree. I wouldn't um, put it on that level. You know, it's interesting because... I didn't, not only have I not seen these remakes or homages that were later, you know, meant to pay respect to it, I had not ever seen this prior to doing the podcast on it. I knew of Bringing Up Baby, and all I knew was that there was something involving a dinosaur. I didn't know that it was a character who was a paleontologist that was the tie-in. I knew that it starred Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant, and I knew that there was a leopard. Because that was the picture that you always see on the internet anytime this movie is brought up, is this leopard with Catherine Hepburn, because you knew that that was Baby. So I went into this not even knowing the genre, Don. I didn't know it was going to be a screwball comedy. I actually kind of expected it to be more of a drama based on the fact that it had Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. And my experience with those two was not in the comedy genre, so... Bit of an interesting experience for me, kind of a an eye-opening one right off the bat. You said you'd seen it before though, right? Yeah, I swear I watched it in college about the same time that I was kind of discovering Turner Classic Movies. Like I know I've brought this up on other podcasts for, for our Connecting with Classics where I never had cable as a kid. And so going to college and getting cable television like Turner Classic Movies was a, was a big revelation point for me. So I know along the way of watching Casablanca and the Philadelphia Story, I, I know I've seen this. But um, when I watched it, this was definitely my first rewatch in in at least 20 years. And I'd forgotten most of it to the point where this was a a fresh viewing in a lot of ways for me. So, yeah, I mean, section by section in terms of the movie, I know you kind of broke that down a little bit more. But um, I I knew I knew the basis of screwball comedy and I noticed and caught so much more than I did the first time. But um, so talk to some of the plot points and some of the the craziness and harebrained consequences that, you know, are in here. Yeah, well, my my takeaways and my experience kind of went like this. First of all, I'm not a huge modern comedy fan. Okay. I don't, I don't enjoy the typical or what has become the typical vulgar way in which comedy leans. This film was refreshing because it doesn't have that. It mm-hmm. was made long before that, you know, a reliance on shock humor or gross out humor ever existed. So there's a lot about this that I like. I think it took me a few minutes to really settle into what I was going to be seeing and not try to take it 
too seriously. I mean, honestly, when, when you see Cary Grant show up at the very beginning of this film and he's talking to his assistant, Alice, and you realize, oh, he's a paleontologist. And I was like, OK, cool. So we're going to get a movie about a scientist. But we don't like no. there's that's it. In fact, we don't even really deal with that at all other than, you know, a joke about a dinosaur bone throughout the antics mm -hmm. until the end of the film. We see him again back in that that office of his that uh, laboratory or whatever. And so I felt like it was a bit of a, you know, throw me for a loop there. I thought that was the story I was going to get. And it and it took a while because Cary Grant with glasses. There's actually a, there's actually a line in this film I really enjoyed that came from Susan to him where she says, "Oh hey, you know, you are so good looking without your glasses." And mm -hmm. I thought that was a, a fun little kind of meta moment where I really feel like the writing was intentionally calling to the fact that obviously Cary Grant is a you know sexual icon mm -hmm. of actors in the past, and so they tried to make him look a little bit more corny here. You know, yeah. we've seen other this happen to other actors in, in more modern day roles. So I thought that they did a great job of that. But yeah, the comic timing of this is is great throughout. It really is fantastic. And so when you were reading that description of what a, a good or great screwball comedy is, it does fit that. Um, it, it's hilarious. It's got a witty script. That it's like I said before, it's it's kind of pure. And to me, I really enjoy getting a pure comedy and it yeah. it felt like a relic man i it, it's it's just a warm light-hearted fun very short which i enjoy movie that you can put on and smile it's one i want to show my kids eventually as far yeah. as like trying to break them into a, an older movie that's black and white i think this is a good option for that too i agree with you uh, would you uh, did you enjoy it enough especially trying to once you got your gear settled and you were into it did you enjoy it enough to seek out more of the screwball comedy genre? I, you know, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Still not. I'm going to have a problem ever loving this genre there. And we'll talk about a couple of places that this one fell short for me. And okay. it's because of that. It's, I don't know. There's just something that, that doesn't work for me. I need somewhere there to be something for me to latch onto that's serious yeah. And that's sure. not the genre. So I'm not blaming the genre yeah. because when this commits to what it's doing, it's doing it at a, one of the highest levels possible. And that's mm -hmm. why it's being recognized. But for me, I don't enjoy that as much. Now, you had talked about the Philadelphia story, which is definitely more appealing to me. It's so good. It, it's, it's a top 10 for me. I'm, I, that makes me, let alone the, the fact of who's in it and the fact that it, you know, Jimmy Stewart is, is also part of that, that cast who is one of my favorites of all time. So I'm, I'm excited to seek that out, but yeah, I don't, I don't particularly think bringing a baby made me suddenly love this genre. I haven't explored a lot of Chaplin mm -hmm. uh, or other silent films that were kind of yeah. like this either. And that's part of the reason is because they just, I just lose interest once the antics go on for a certain period of time. I'm like, Okay, it's enough. I've seen seen it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, um, I was reading something about doing the research of the film where Howard Hawks himself said um, that he felt like he laid this one on even too thick, where he admits that he went too far because every character in the film, large or small, is going full screwball. Is 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 subverting expectations? Is changing the way they act? Is is they're all in on their own little weird little gags and things like that? Where there's not really a straight man. Or, or a normal character to kind of be a foil because if it's 
And I guess if the closest screwball character is is David, or, or I should say the closest straight man character is David, even he still gets in his gags and his timing and his uh, his frenetic energy in the way that he goes a little bit where you need a few more. I know maybe anchors is the wrong word, but you do need a straight man or two to kind of make this kind of normalize a little bit, but um, I'm with you. Um, it, It's, it, this is a hard genre to get your arms around. It's a great place to introduce people to black and white film and some older things. Um, I will definitely sing the praises for the Philadelphia story all day because it, it's, it, I find it to be more interesting because it's, it's a little bit more of a, all in one night kind of movie. Um, it's a love triangle. And you, once you infuse Jimmy Stewart's kind of warble and way of doing things, it just really lends itself into just more comedy. And again, it's, it, you said it before, it, it is Cary Grant doing something funny and unique. And I love the line with the glasses too, because just coincidence's sake, uh, 1938 is also the year of the debut year of Superman, who just turned 80 himself. So the idea of like, I know. Joe Schuster and, and, and Jerry Siegel didn't see this movie before making the character, but you're like, gosh, the glasses thing is so true because it, it, it's, it's a simple character device. But, like a Clark Kent versus Superman situation. Yeah. So um, for me, in terms of um, where this reaction went a little bit, I, I'm kind of with you there on consequences. Um, if a watcher cannot suspend a little bit of disbelief in that to let a few things kind of go loosey-goosey, It'll this a movie like this will destroy their logical brains because of the rack the racking up of improbabilities and you I know you cited a few which ones kind of made your list of like ah oh, come on well yeah consequences is definitely something that I felt were lacking in this film it's it's kind of ironic because there is one moment of supposed consequence and it's like my least section favorite of the or least favorite section of the film which is the jail scene yeah but leading up to that I mean. Right off the bat, we have David hits this golf ball onto Susan's fairway, and she just ignores him completely and keeps playing it. And eventually, knowing full well it's probably not her ball, she just keeps it. She doesn't give it back, mm-hmm. which then leads them to the parking lot and you know another fun little hilarious section. But ultimately, she drives off in his car wrecking another vehicle along the way Mm -hmm. no consequences going on further they end up knocking over a vehicle on the road where this this truck or whatever was carrying a bunch of chickens cause an accident and ruin like these guys chickens go everywhere and there's no consequence for that no and she parks illegally and a cop is ready to give her a ticket maybe even take her to jail he says and she lies again hops in somebody else's car again and steals that car and there's no consequences. And so my poor brain <laughs> that yeah. needs resolution to this is being driven nuts because it's, it's funny. Yeah. But it's funny. To me, yeah. it's more funny if there's something on the line and when you do yeah. it multiple times over and over and over, I, it's now not funny because there's no stakes and there's, no, I know that she's going to get away with it. And so I found it funny because, or ironic, I guess, that, that when she does get into jail and they're stuck there, and now's the moment of kind of consequence that I should be like rooting for. I didn't love that that sequence, and yeah, I thought it wasn't quite as entertaining as the rest of the film. It's probably the the main reason that I I don't think this is higher for me than than some, mm-hmm. and it might also be because there's so many other characters involved. When this film shines the most is is in these some of these sequences where there's no consequences when it's grant and Hepburn 
when it's mm-hmm. Susan and David and that's it, dude, it, it doesn't get any better. That's yeah, I agree. phenomenal. You're, you're talking about two all-time greats carrying a screen. Well, of course, duh. That makes sense. But when you add in some of these other characters, like in the jail, it starts to kind of lose the tightness mm-hmm. for me. And yeah. so, so then, and then of course she gets out of jail anyway. She lies again and she gets out of that and there's no consequences ultimately there either. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. When, when, when the two of them are on screen, on screen together, it, it's the peak of the film. You know, he was 34 at the time. She was 31. They're at the top of their games. And just, I, I, I like the way you put it. It, it, it. This is a very tame relic. And, and to embrace this relic, I really had to step back and, and kind of consider the era because um, you brought this up in, in a perfect way for our generation. Our closest brand of screwball comedy that we grew up on are those raunchy 80s movies, you know, for, that are R-rated like Meatballs and Candy Shack and Revenge of the Nerds, where the gags are the screwball focus and the, of the comic timing more than anything that's more of a romantic angle. It's just funny for the sake of funny. Stand-up comedians doing their thing. Maybe Adam Sandler has a bit of that going in the 90s going forward where it's the man-child thing or even Judd Apatow today doing some of that immature characters trying to find love but it never goes really full screwball nowadays the way that this does back then because the dialogue is just so intricate and just so fast and i like the way um i'll borrow a line you said this morning uh patrick was talking about uh aaron sorkin and trying to watch an aaron sorkin show with the subtitles on and you're like dude man that's like watching a waterfall with headphones on you just can't keep up and there's a lot of elements of this film where it just goes so fast that you just can't keep up there's so many things going on so and i have to that's where I kind of, again, step back into that time capsule and say, consider the era. You know, back then, a woman in the lead, Grant masking his suaveness, the torn clothes, the bathrobe, the wild animal hanging around, car mishaps, the other silly mistakes. All of that for then is daring and risque at that time. Whereas we're used to, you know, nudity and screwball stuff, that they, at least what they call screwball stuff today. So I have to give Bringing Up Baby credit for that because sometimes without those foundations of how to do comedy and how to make it, you know, observational, but still dialogue driven that that's kind of where this goes. Um, I'll still take a Philadelphia story with this one. Um, at the same time, they don't make romantic comedies like this anymore. Um, the closest one to me that I think goes, goes to the zany humor to be a, a true screwball comedy recently would maybe be, mm, there's something about Mary by the Fairley brothers where I don't think there's an actor today that that's going full screwball. But you again, what's, what is the primary, thing that you remember from there's something about mary what is the one most memorable moment it is disgusting sexualized hair joke right Mm -hmm. and and so that's what's fascinating to me is like it's so different and you're right this is progressive for the time and yet it has stuff that people these days would probably cringe at there's a scene where david is wearing a a woman's bathrobe with ruffles on it and Mm -hmm. it's just so hilarious like you said it's masking that that normal masculinity that we mm-hmm. get from Cary grant and, and he says something about how somebody comes to the door and he's like you know what do you think i'm gay and, mm-hmm. and he's like he says it in a very negative manner oh yeah so i'm sure that line wouldn't play well today but um yeah he the performances are just are just great i mean i don't love her character but i think that is intentional i'm not supposed to love her character in which we'll talk i'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into like our lessons but i loved i loved his performance he was a standout for me even even more than her i think because my greatest knowledge of carrie grant goes to north by northwest and so when i compare that to this 
I see such a drastic difference of acting and it really shows his skill because he can handle not being dominant and strong. He can handle being this aloof character yet. He can also handle being the absolute, you know, stoic strong lead for a film as well. Do you think there are any actors today that can pull off this kind of thing? I think Tom Hanks can. Early yeah. Tom Hanks was was yeah. the screwball comedy guy, and now he can handle the the more suave. I think potentially Tom Cruise as well would be yeah. maybe the other the other one that would be able to do this. I I would I wonder about Ryan Gosling. I think we may get a, a glimpse of that coming up here with First Man. I don't think that's going to show the comedic side of Gosling that yeah. we've we've gotten in most of his films. We've seen purely serious performances from him in, in things like Drive, Only God Forgives, which he doesn't talk a lot, mm. and uh, Blade Runner 2049. But in those, he is much more robotic, some of that, some of that by very nature of the film. Mm-hmm. So I think in First Man, we're going to see a more serious role without that comedy that he has normally to lean yeah. on. And, and maybe he could could pull off this double duty as well. But it's it's a talent. I mean, it is a very rare talent. The guy for me that I think could could do it, it's more a guy who has a comedy base but has the drama skill would be a guy like Chris Pratt maybe could do something like this. I you know, I have I, I don't know. I, I would yeah. I would love to see it. I'll tell you yeah. that. I would love to see him go full drama. I I keep waiting for that, yeah. honestly. Yeah. I, you know, I thought maybe I'd get that in the Magnificent Seven remake and then no, not in the Hammond film. And yeah. then you know, Passengers, he dabbles. Don't get me started. He, well, 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 we know how I feel <laughs> about that movie, but he dabbles in being yeah. dramatic and serious, and he does well for me in those moments. But he ultimately does always lean back on some comedy. So it, that's the difference. Is there's none of that in in these two performances, North by Northwest, yeah. and then Bringing a Baby. These are two drastically different and what I realized is they also came like 20 years apart. So mm-hmm. these are different periods of, of Grant's career. Yeah. One thing I, I really do enjoy about it, not only the Grant and Hepburn moments, but the dinner sequence with, I forget who it is. Is, is it a professor or a colonel? Whoever okay. it was that they were having dinner with. I really enjoyed the wordplay that goes back and forth there. Mm. Um, it's just... The script in in general is just very witty and very much so. Very tight. It's there's not a lot of loose words and speeches that get thrown around to just take up screen time, and I, right. I like that. I did look this one up. I know we've been dabbling with uh, examining that um, top 100 screenplays of all time list from the W from the Writers Guild of America. And I'm like, I wonder if this one makes that list. Um, and it doesn't. Uh, Philadelphia stories on that list, but not this one. So, um, yeah, I I, I think. Equal praise should definitely go to Catherine Hepburn too, because that's the other thing that the Catherine Hepburn I'm used to seeing is, you know, Lion, you know, Lion of Winter. I mean, she can bring the dramatic chops as well. So to have her do this bubbly fun self, it is, and to, to let herself go enough to be like, Hey, I'm going to make an absolute fool of myself on screen in this very witty way. Cause her commitment to character is another one of those things where I just, people don't do that anymore. I, I, if anyone goes, full commitment in terms of comedy like this today is probably like Melissa McCarthy who can do the physical parts, but I don't know if she has the wit chops and speed the way Hepburn shows on here. So I hope somebody takes this recording and 
cuts it, you know, like almost like mm-hmm. you do with fake news, just to clip out the portions here where you just compared Catherine Hepburn to Melissa McCarthy. I did. Take it out of context. <laughs> I, do, I, I do give Melissa McCarthy credit. I think she, in a way, I'll say here, take another clip. I think she's the second coming of Jim Carrey. I think she's the best physical co- comedian in the business right now. That, But that's all she's kind of got. I know she's dabbling with some drama and she does what she does very well, but she needs a little more variety to not always be just, the, the bumbling fat girl you know she she needs she needs more range even with her comedy she needs more range i'm not even gonna get into this i'm just gonna let okay, you okay, okay. you can die on that hill yeah. um I, I will die on alone. the next hill <laughs> of connecting point so well, before we before we hit connecting oh, point, i want to mention one quick thing and that is the cat because this mm. does have a leopard which makes me want to show it to my daughter it's a it's a young leopard so it's smaller in stature than mm. a big big cat uh, this played okay for me i i thought it was gonna yeah. be a bigger deal because i'm such a cat guy there mm. is a moment though when this leopard is rolling around in the dirt playing with the dog oh and yeah i loved that i thought that was great and you know whatever it's almost like watching a nature documentary more than a movie at that point but i thought that the leopard interaction in this was overall more gimmicky than it was important oh, to, yeah. the, to the story but yeah, very gimmicky it it definitely is memorable. It gives you some some shots that you can screen cap, like them driving in the car with the leopard in the background, yeah. and or, things or like Carrie Grant walking in the door to surprise and the glass glare, you know. But yeah, okay. so and the idea that this heiress who she reminds me a lot of maybe like what I would kind of expect like a Paris Hilton to be like. Sure. The fact that she would like have this leopard just because she's rich made mm-hmm. a lot of sense as well, and so. I know that's like something people realize, you know, it's called bringing up baby and the name of the leopard is baby. It's kind of weird. I, I think it's more of a double entendre. The title mm-hmm. it has I more agree. of a, a meaning, double meaning here. Um, but I, I do like the inclusion, but I think it could have been just as good of a movie without the leopard as well. I got you. All right. Connecting point. Uh, so mine comes first in the film. So I'll go first. Um, For me, the centerpiece piece that I enjoyed was the nightclub scene. Uh, the whole sequence is a clinic on physical and verbal, verbal performance of comedy. Um, I couldn't stop marveling at the play-by-play intricacy you can watch in the scene, whether the way they cross each other in the door, the way the things have to move just right across this very large set, the the purse bit for a bit there, um, his hat, and and just all the all the things that are at work and all the moving pieces. It's just really amazing to watch that craft in action and you and you have to know you have to wonder how much of that is on the scripted written page and how long that scene had to be to to chop all those pieces and parts together to kind of put, pull it off and at the same time how's the performance um i did remember i did remember reading again for the research that filming this was extremely difficult because um hepburn and grant just kept stop kept kept laughing you know, so I know we always have these post-credits blooper reels in the films that we kind of watch now. I'd love to get a, a hand of a reel or two of the bloopers of this. But um, I, in that sequence, I really couldn't stop wiping the f- smile off my face because I feel like every great romantic comedy since has at least one screwball scene that kind of attempts this kind of detail and humor like this central nightclub scene where a little bit of fun, a little bit of cringe, a little bit of embarrassment, a little bit of shock. And um, many times it's it's those scenes in, in romantic comedy since then that we most remember because of the quality of the moment and the reaction it creates. So um, like um, like you said, even though it's sexualized hair gel in something about Mary, we remember because it it's just such a 
tightly composed screwball scene or when Ryan, when Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock find themselves naked after the shower in the proposal, or uh, I think the, the teacher parent conference with uh, in crazy, stupid love is your screwball moment of, you know, just the dialogue and the everything going on in that scene. And just, I feel like every good romantic comedy has this centerpiece and the nightclub scene here is, is really, really good. It's really all about her, uh, her flutter and his fluster. Um, their first meeting at the golf course was kind of just a taste of this. Like you said, you meet her, you see this whirlwind, you see this Hurricane Susan come rolling through. But um, this scene here where they have to engage themselves more is the real meat cute that comes in romantic comedies like this. So uh, Hepburn and Grant are all in for their characterization by the time you get to the scene. It's not just meet them. Now you're like, whoa, we're really going to be into this. And the extended sequence here then becomes kind of the full blooming of who those two characters are, how these two characters are going to mix and what possibilities are coming. Because from there on, it's just going to get crazy. And my investment point was, was in from then on. I wanted to see what would happen and, and I wanted to see it escalate and boy, did it ever. Well, I mentioned a little bit earlier that I really enjoyed that dinner scene with the, again, Colonel Professor, whoever he was, mm-hmm. but my favorite moment of the film would have been this as well. If I had to pick one, yeah. I, I loved this scene. I'm glad that you chose it just from the very beginning. Although of course it's a little irrational that you would slip and fall by stepping on an olive. Wouldn't that just like squish under your foot? Right, right, right. I, I, I found, but yeah, I, I love that their chemistry right here, it truly starts to take hold. And this is where you get a sense that it, it might be a romantic comedy and not yeah. just two random people completely on different spectrums there you see a sense of them coming together here okay for me my connecting point is actually somewhat a negative and this is this is rare that it happens but it was the ending of this film i am not sure that i buy this being a romantic comedy i'm not sh- i kind of hesitated there when we you mentioned or actually i cringed when you said that this was like in the 50s of the top 100 on the passions film list and the reason is I don't know that I'd buy David's profession of love at the end. If he loves her, if he truly does, this is a relationship that is going to be an absolute mess for the rest of their lives. There is no basis for this couple to have a lasting relationship. It is incredibly shallow portrayal of love, in my opinion, if we are to believe that it gets to this serious of a level after only 24 hours spent together, and especially within the context of what happens to them in this 24 hours. At the end, he can't even get a word in when he's trying to speak. Susan is cutting him off, saying, and you still love me? And he's stammering and protesting, and she says, you do? And eventually, it's like he just, again, it's played for comedy. He just gives up, and he's like, yes, okay, whatever. I love you, you know? And it's funny. And so if we want to call this a comedy and stick to just being a comedy, I'm good with that moment. If we want to try and consider this romantic, I have an issue because there's nothing romantic about that. It's tragic to me, actually, that this man is so unable to stand up for himself and to make his own decisions that he is just going to be okay with whatever she wants. And yes, he's attracted to her. Going to go there in a minute. He doesn't love her. There is no reason for him to make these life-changing decisions based on him. Now, he has a fiancé at the beginning of this movie. His assistant is his fiancé, Alice. Mm-hmm. 24 hours later, he's making out with Susan in the same place that he started with Alice. 
that's not love. That's not how love works. And so it really irritated me <laughs> and it kind of soured my opinion overall of the film a little bit. Um, and so that's, that's my connecting point. Now I, I do like, again, I, I just want to be very clear. I love the comedic timing of how this scene plays out. It's funny. And it yeah. is in line with the characters and the way that they have acted up until now. Mm-hmm. I just don't like the moniker that this film gets of being considered a romantic film because there is no basis for that. And what I would hate is for it to be mistaken for this to be a natural way that people could truly ever come together and find love. Yeah. And, you know, there is some truth to having spent extremely crazy night together and go through two people who've gone through tough challenges and that bringing them together in a way that just going out to the movies one night wouldn't do. That is absolutely the case. You're going to learn a lot more about that person in the 24 hours that David and Susan spent together than you are in me going to the movies and a dinner with a new girl that I met by swiping right on Tinder. And (laughs) that's, that's true, but it's not going to be to the point where this is how I I, I just bail on my fiance the next morning. And yeah. I'm ready to commit and say I'm in love. So I had a, a little bit of an issue with that, which became my connecting point because it was the strongest emotion that I felt throughout the sure. film, unfortunately. No, I, I, I completely see what you mean because I said it earlier about just accepting a screwball comedy with the suspension of disbelief. And that's the biggest suspension of disbelief you have to take from this movie is not so much that the, the harebrained circumstances can happen and that, you know, someone's going to slip on an olive or tear their dress. Like all those things are ho-hum easy to just go with, you know, but you're right. When you get to this romantic comedy peak or when it has to then be a romance, it, it, it is too big of a hurdle for, for suspension of disbelief. And, but yeah, fine film construction wise and all that, like, like, like as an example of this kind of comedic timing and pacing, all that top notch. I'm kind of right there with you. I I really like that you picked that as your connecting point, because sometimes you're right. Not all films are going to have a positive one that you're going to spin something out of it. That's either kind of a a hitch, a tangle or a a snag of some kind where you can still recognize greatness, but just be like, ah, gosh, I, I can't get to this level because of this thing in the way. Uh, well done. Good point. Why, thank you. Well, my lesson ties into this. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say... Do you want to do, do yours first? Negative negative connotation first? Smoothie second? How do you want to do it? Uh, you know, I think ours are very similar. So why don't yeah. you kick us off again? We'll just keep right. going. Well, I'll be unlike your connecting point. I, I'm okay with suspending disbelief. So I'll, I'll go... I'll, my life lesson will be eccentric girls are attractive. Um, because to me, the eccentric kind of crazy ones kind of represent a matter, a measure of unattainability above the, you know, the expectedness and the, and the ordinary that we normally see swiping left or swiping right on Tinder or however you want to meet women where you're like, Oh, all these women are the same. or I keep meeting the same girl, but you meet a girl like this crazy as she is, uh, nutty as she is, meddlesome as she is, uh, invasive as she is. It's still, there's still kind of a weird attractiveness to that because we're kind of drawn to uh, her uniqueness, her confidence, her boldness, and the unpredictability because we, we want a little bit of that in ourselves. We want the an, a relationship or an experience with, with a partner that is that has those same qualities. So us curious men kind of want in on that. 
we want to be the one to kind of tame the wild girl. You know, I know the trope is normally that, you know, the girls fall for the bad boy, you know, that that's kind of the romantic comedy trope we've seen a thousand times, but I don't know. I've seen the same trope where men fall for the crazy one, you know? So um, I think it's quite possibly as a matter of kind of wanting to embrace and be okay to fly their own freak flag and their own crazy emotions around a partner or that is equally kind of, crazy like hey i could be myself around this nutty person and i can kind of mess with her back so yeah eccentric girls are attractive that's my life lesson here well don we have the same life lesson i'm gonna talk a little more about that and uh, you know the a certain phrase came to my mind when i saw susan in this film and kids cover your ears for one quick second excuse my french but bitches be crazy yes all right Kids, you can listen again. Now, part of this is I have, hopefully, neither of my ex-wives are listening to this podcast because I'm going to be blunt. And I've experienced this Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> quite possibly. And, and I, I don't mean that negatively. I have very close relationships with both of my ex-wives. We're, we're very good friends still. But in truth, there are elements of this personality that I know I have found myself attracted to. And it's because of that phrase what you're saying in a much nicer way eccentric girls are attractive before i go on i i do want to mention this can apply to any gender you you kind of touched on this too i have and you have experience with this male chasing a female relationship like we see in the film but it doesn't necessarily have to go that way so let's be as inclusive as possible it could be dudes be crazy and the girl could be chasing this time same type of personality so it's about one person chasing feeling like that's eccentricness is something that is desired, something intriguing and mysterious to deal with. But for me, yeah, I mean, delightful, attractive, mysterious, eccentric women like Susan, somewhat controlling, very strong. Um, They know what they want. They don't beat around the bush. They go out of their way to influence situations. I am attracted to that quality in a woman. So in Susan, I was like, man, this woman is nuts. And gosh, I'd probably be all over her. Like just, you know, like I'd be wrapped up in it just like David is, even though I'm not quite like David, but there's also an element here where Alice is sort of a a unique stereotype of a, of a person that David is in a relationship with as well. She's very controlling. She's telling him, what needs to happen with his career. And she seems to be more impressed with that than she is him as a person. I mean, we only get one conversation, but that's really what it's trying to convey. So David has an issue with finding a woman on equal footing uh, for all the right reasons. He is clearly attracted to dominant women. He is more of a submissive personality. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that dynamic in this film so much. Uh, Susan uses this leopard to suck him into spending time with her and not getting married that afternoon, which is essentially what the film is. It's antics. And it's this uncre- unwi- or wild sequence of events, but it's all her trying to keep him from getting married at its, at its core. And these are the same tactics that people use today. I mean, they wouldn't use the leopard, probably, because I don't think we have access to that. But we do this instead of communicating we try to trick each other and that's what this ultimately showed me yeah susan doesn't just sit david down and say hey david i'm really attracted to you 
and I'd love to like get to know you. Why don't you not marry Alice today? How about you put that on hold and we just met, but let's take a couple of weeks and see if we have any kind of chemistry. Let's see if we, if this is a relationship that could go anywhere before you commit your life to someone else when you obviously are attracted to me as well. That's called communication. Yep. No, just like we tend to do in our lives today, we try to trick each other. We try to manipulate the circumstances and the situations around what it is that we want to happen to kind of usher that result in. And it's something we need to be aware of. Uh, you know, in a perfect world, this is not how things would play out. Susan would have sat David down and they would have that talk. She has a great line in this movie where she says, the love impulse in man frequently reveals itself in terms of conflict. And that speaks to this chasing of eccentric personalities. We don't always want the easy way. And I think it's why people tend to end up leaving marriages and leaving relationships when they get routine. Mm -hmm. It's why we talk about spicing up the bedroom. It's because you need to keep something fresh and interesting to be attentive to, to still have an excitement about a relationship. It's about keeping things um, intriguing and new and, and discovering ways to interact with your significant other. So yeah, all of this is, is kind of like directly related to that bitches be crazy. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love uh, it. They are. But ultimately even though she likes creating this chaos and conflict that he wants to be a part of, we can take something out of that by saying, hey, this is something we need to be aware of and resistant to in our everyday lives because it's usually not going to result in this, when I go back to my connecting point, perfect, happy scenario at the end. Yeah, that's not, definitely. not what's going to take place. So yeah. that's my life lesson, I guess. I like it. I like it. Um, no, if I had a second one, it would be just the simplicity of, you know, listen to listen to people before you before you speak next, you know, like just ba like you said, basic communication They're they're They, they run over each other in this film with the way they talk and try to ex over shake each other to over explain things. And, and yet it just goes in one ear out the other with her all the time. So it, it's really is good, silly fun. It is definitely worth watching. I'm glad that we got to this one. And yeah. this is part of the joy of this list, man, is that every movie is not going to be top 100 for us all time, or otherwise no. we would, we would be named AFI. Uh, <laughs> but, but that's not how this works. And, it's an exploration of film. That's what we hope listeners that you are on this journey with us for is to discover new genres that you haven't paid enough attention to that you haven't experienced. Maybe you're like me and you've never seen Cary Grant be funny before. And this is your first time doing that. So it, it's good that it's on this list, even though I don't necessarily think for me, I would put it there. If it wasn't there, I would never have probably watched it. So. Yeah. Same here. Uh, this is a four out of five. I can't call it top 50 comedy and top 100 kind of thing. So yeah. All right, man. Well, where can people find more of your work, your writing, and your efforts out there in the film criticism world? Sure. Easy enough. Everymoviehasalesson.com is the way to go with that main website there. Um, use that same title to search for me on Twitter, Facebook, or otherwise. Um, always looking for new followers and readers and folk. Awesome. And then uh, what do we got coming next month? Ooh, see, next month, another anniversary year, we have Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Perfect for the good summer heat kind of time of July. Absolutely sweltering. We've we've pitched Vertigo as being our next episode a couple of months now. We keep pushing it back, but we're doing it in July 2018. So if you're listening to this, it's please, know, we are committing. This, this is it. It's time to do Vertigo. 
yeah, which is widely considered number one all time by many no, people. This one's big. And if, if it's about the summer heat that you need, we have a desert coming your way in August. That'll make things nice and dry for you. Well, listeners, sure. if you want to catch up with more of my stuff, you can always find me on Twitter at FeelinFilmAaron or tweeting out of the main account at FeelinFilm. Our written reviews are on FeelinFilm.com. And then, of course, your podcast feed where you're getting this. There's a wealth of content uh, with number of contributors like Don and then a lot of episodes with just myself and my main co-host, Patrick. So please check that out. We hope you enjoy these. If you do, drop us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you may be listening to this podcast because it does help spread the word and help other people discover our content and join the conversation, which is a great place you can do that, is the Facebook group. You can come to Facebook, to the Feel and Film Facebook discussion group. We talk about movies every day, all day long. Just pop it into the search bar there in Facebook or find a link in the show notes and come be a part of that community. Well, thank you for listening. As always, stay positive. And keep connecting with classics. Classics.